Well, good morning again. Um, if you're new with us today, we have in our bulletins, we have some tear outs. We'd love for you to just let us know you're here. And uh, we've got somebody who does an amazing little job of sending a box of cookies to, to welcome you. And let me tell you what, those cookies are like receiving a pound of gold. They really are. I mean, like every time I get one of those boxes of cookies, every now and then we have an undeliverable box. And uh, somebody writes the wrong address or something. So if you love me, you'll write the wrong address on your card. No, I'm joking. But those literally are like a pound of gold. They're, they're wonderful. Hilda makes those for um, our, our new visitors. So um, go ahead and tear that off. And then I know I had another announcement, but I can't remember it. So we're just going to get right in. Oh, I know what it is. If you need a Bible, um, we have in the back, we have Bibles. So just raise your hand. They'll bring you one. We're going to use a lot of the Bible today. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and grab one from Josh. John needs one, our worship leader. Way to go. Being a really bad Christian there, John. Um, (laughs) And if you just simply need a Bible and you don't have one, then this one's yours. It's our gift to you, so keep it and and you can have it. So if you need one, if you're like, man, I need to just grab one, just grab one from the back. It's it's yours. Um, Very uh, important to have a Bible. So um, I want to talk for a second about train wreck movies train wreck movies. I cannot stand train wreck movies. You know what I'm talking about. Meet the parents. Some of you are like, that's my favorite movie. Can't stand it. Let me tell you why I can't stand it. You know that it's going to be a train wreck the entire time, and it just hurts. It's like, oh, Ben Stiller accidentally lit the, um, the thing on fire that you know, his sister-in-law was going to get married under. And then, oh, whoops, he accidentally had sewage go out over the entire yard. Oh, whoops, he accidentally painted a cat. I just, oh, man, every time I watch these movies, I cringe. The train wreck movies. Those stories hurt. And there's a whole genre of these train wreck movies. And I, and I, I used to like them. I used to laugh. I used to think they're really funny. And then every now and then I went, oh, man, that hits a little bit too close to life sometimes. It's a little bit too close to the train wreck that every now and then can be life. Are any of you with me? These train wreck movies can hit a little bit too close to home sometimes. But I can't stand train wreck movies. And as we're in this series called Priests and Kings, one of the things we've been doing is looking at the priests of the Old Testament and now the kings. And today is the first day that we have looking at the kings. And we look at this guy Saul, who on paper looks really good. In fact, he was chosen, the people of Israel, and, and at 1 Samuel um, 8, I think it'll be up on the screen here in a second, 8, 5, simply says, they said to him, this is saying to the old priest, You're an old, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. And so what did God do? This guy named Saul is chasing donkeys. And he's going around looking for them, and he comes up to Samuel, and the Lord says to Samuel, that's the guy, anoint him king right now over Israel. And the Bible makes a lot of mention about how he was handsome and a head taller than every other man in Israel. He looked like the kings that the other nations had. He looked the part. He looked good. But his life would eventually end up spiraling out of control like one of those train wreck movies that I just can't stand. That's what his life would turn out to be. Mainly because his life focused inward only on him and his own glory. 
But so what happened was that Samuel, the priest, the one who speaks for God to the people, warned them, this is what would happen if you had a king. This is the problem. That if you have this king, if he rises up, then he will demand the rights of a king. And Samuel warned him, the scripture said Samuel warned him a couple of times. And by the way, I might just make mention that it took us about um, six weeks to go through the first eight chapters. And then today we're actually going to finish the rest of Samuel. So isn't that incredible? We're going to go through all these chapters, but just by focusing on one. Um, Saul was committed to be this king. And at first he does really good. At first he saves this town called Jabesh. And, and he's looking really good. The people then confirm him as king. They say, yes, this is the guy that we wanted. This is the very guy that we wanted. He's a head taller. He's handsome. He's a military ruler. This is exactly what we were looking for. So then the people come around and confirm him as king. And then he goes out to another battle. And Samuel says, listen, remember Samuel, the guy who speaks for God, goes to Saul and says, listen, we're going to do a sacrifice before the battle. Wait for me for seven days. The seventh day came. Samuel didn't show up. And so Saul said, you know what? Forget this guy. We're doing a sacrifice. So he did a sacrifice right there and went out to the battle. When Samuel showed up, he rebuked him because he did not listen. And so at first, this is his first misstep. And then next, finally, we're going to look at the verse where really his life, it really started the whole train wreck downward spiral of Saul's life. And then eventually we'll get to to verses, we're not going to exactly look at these ones today, but there's some verses that say the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. And he began to throw spears at his closest advisor, David. And he began to go on murderous rampages. This guy, really, what, what commentators tell us is probably he descended into some sort of mental illness here. But flip with me right now to 1 Samuel 15. And this is a long chapter. We're going to look at all of it today, so there's a lot here. <coughs> Excuse me. But we're first going to look at just verses... Um, one through three. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you over, <coughs> excuse me, um, over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Malachites for what they did in Israel, did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack them, Malachites. Totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men, women, and children, infants, cattle, and sheep, and camels, and donkeys. I know we're reading this today, and we just talked about ISIS, and we're reading this going, wait a second, what? What what did God say to do? Go kill all the women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys? That doesn't sound like the God that we serve. And many people point to this. Many people look at the Old Testament and say, see See, God is just like all the other people out there. He teaches violence, and he teaches people to do that. Well, you know, we have to be careful about the way that we interpret these verses. Because at first it sounds like, well, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, but that does not, that's not what God said there. So how do we deal with these issues first? And again, I find myself saying this all the time. As a people group, we love to take our 21st century ethics. And we love to judge the Bronze Age. And we just can't do that. 
no matter where you're at. I mean, you just can't judge the Bronze Age here. So here's what was happening, and this story is told in the book of Exodus. I'm going to sum it up for you to save us from a ton of Bible reading. I'd say go home and check it out. As God's people were coming out of Israel, the Amalekites came down and, and literally, it says, waylaid them. Literally tried to destroy what God was doing there. And there was opportunities for them to repent, and they didn't do that. And so literally this people is known the entire community as a wicked community. There was a practice at the time to deliver up nations to God. And what that meant was by destroying them. Now, it was so that God could establish his holiness on earth. And I know that that sounds crazy in the 21st century mind, who, you know, with, with tolerance in view. But this is the way of the world in the Bronze Age, that if you wanted to establish a new um, holy order of people, then the other people that were not holy, that served other gods, that did horrible and detestable things to their enemies and to their, even their own people, had to go. Because eventually, God even said, don't even intermarry with people, because he eventually knew that his people would become corrupt because of the neighbors. And that's kind of what happened. You know, Israel came in, and they, di- they didn't listen to God, and they sort of became corrupt. The also, also, the other thing here, um, just a quick metaphor for a theological reflection of the question, is God a murderer? Because you could literally ask that question looking at this text. Well, how is God not a murderer? Well, let me give you this analogy. If I was to take a sledgehammer and go stand on my car and just beat my car to shreds, I mean, just really do it in, you know, the windshield out, beat it all up, and then I called the police and said, hi, um, somebody vandalized my car. And they came out and they said, wow, yeah, somebody really vandalized your car. And I would say, oh, yeah, it was me. They would say, well, it's your own car. We can't do anything. We can't arrest you for vandalizing your own car. That was your own fault. So can we call, if God is the true author of human life, then our ethics cannot be his ethics as well. That's the point I'm trying to make with this. It's a different ethical understanding of the world. Those are God's people. We belong to him. Our lives are in his hands. Second, the way to look at this is God's progressive revelation. That's like if you go to a, um, a theological dictionary, you could look up the word progressive revelation. And literally it means exactly how it sounds. God was fully revealed in two places in the Bible. One, the garden, when he walked and talked with Adam and Eve. And then sin came in the way, and so God had to hide himself literally because he was too holy to be around these sinners, these people. So God kind of had to pull himself away from walking and talking, and he had to cast them out of the garden. And in the second place is Jesus. Again, when Jesus walks and talks with his people. So there's the full revelation of God is summed up in Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's hard to judge Scripture based on part of a revelation of God. Because as you read the entire New Testament, or Old Testament, into the New, you will see that God reveals himself more and more and more and more, and then boom, the person of Jesus comes. Because he knew he could not, he had to prepare his people. He could not handle, their people could not handle God fully revealed to them in that moment. So the way, one of the ideas as we look at the scripture is we have to be careful because of progressive revelation. God is fully revealed in Jesus, which is the not yet stage. 
And then finally, understand, like I mentioned before, the cultural historic factors. These people lived in the most, some of the most brutal times imaginable. And this little act by Israel compared to other nations was sort of uh, almost merciful <laughs> compared to what other nations were doing at the time. But the most important thing here is that God's holiness had to dwell in his people. God's holiness, he had to have a place for his holiness to dwell. And he wanted his people to be perfect. And therefore, you know, these, the Israelites were beginning to shack up with the neighbors. And this was not good. So the first, one of the big orders of king here was to go take the Amalekites out. Because they were so evil and wicked and they served other gods. And it was essentially a horrible situation. All right, let's keep reading now. Verses 4, 5, and 6. And some of you probably still have questions about this, and I understand. But uh, it's just, there's a lot there. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telam. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judea. Saul went up to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away and leave the Amalekites, so I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. So this is important to note, too, that their motive was not just to go out and dest- completely destroy other people. The, the Kenites, who were kind and actually showed, exhibited some of God's holiness, were, were spared because they were kind to the Israelites. Um, verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havial to Serena, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and his people. He totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat of calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Hmm. This is important to note, that Saul took the good animals, but killed the bad animals. That Saul took the king, but uh, let everybody else die. This is really important to note. Let's keep going. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor, and he has turned and gone on down to Gagal. Wow, do you see that? God says, I regret that I made Saul king because he refused to carry out my instructions. God sent Saul on mission for his holy name, that this nation could remain holy and pleasing to God. And yet, when he went on that mission, Saul was on his own agenda, not God's agenda. And I think that's something we need to be careful with with our lives. But look at the next thing that it says. It says that Saul wasn't even there when Samuel went to go look for him. What was he doing? He was building a monument to himself. Wow. That's powerful. Okay, so we're going to look at the rest of this now. And just listen, there's so much here. When Samuel reached him, Saul said to the Lord, 
bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But did he carry out the Lord's instructions? No. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Why is this lowering of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Malachites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle and sacrificed to the Lord the rest. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over all of Israel, and then he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Malachites, that wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why do you pronounce, um, why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. See what he said? I, I did. I, went on, I obeyed half of it. I completely destroyed the Malachites and brought back Agog, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gagal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as, he, as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than a sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instruction. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you over king of Israel. And Samuel turned to leave. Saul caught a hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that we should change our minds, that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned. Please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agog, king of the Malachites. Agog came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, Your sword has made women childless. You will mourn. Uh, your mother will be a childless among women. And Samuel put Agog to death before the Lord at Gagal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gabah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again, and Samuel, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Whew. That was long. This is a really interesting story. Now, was Saul repentant, or was he caught? I think that's an important distinction to make. Oftentimes when people screw up big and they're caught, they're not really repentant. They're sad they got caught. He didn't go to, Sam, to Samuel, who was the voice of the Lord at the time, and say, oh, hey, I didn't really do exactly, or I couldn't do it exactly the way. He came to him with excuses. Once he was called out, all he had was excuses. That's all he had. If there's anything that reveals a person's heart more than anything else, it is when you screw up, do you own up to it, or are you caught? 
I think that's an important question. I think it's as men and women who, who follow Jesus that when we screw up on things, and we're going we're gonna to screw up on things. We're going to not listen. We're going to go after our own agenda. Selfishness might take over sometimes. I think the important thing here is we own up to that. As men and women of the Lord, that we own up to that and say, I screwed up. I just screwed up. What do you do? I mean, Saul here then goes to make excuses. He says, well, yeah, you know what? We brought um, the, uh, the, the king, Agog, we, we brought him over because, you know, yeah, we were going to take care of him. But, um, and then the, the men, they, they brought the sheep and cattle, but it was for a good purpose. It was to sacrifice. Sometimes we make excuses to showcase a good intention, but at the end of the day, they're really just excuses. Right? And you probably see this a lot in the workplace. Oh, I was going to do that, but I was too busy washing your car, boss. You know, I was going to do that, but I was, you know, too busy saying how great you were on Twitter. I was going to do it. And really, the heart of the matter comes out when Saul confesses to Samuel, I would have done it, but I was afraid. He was crippled by fear. Um, I can't remember who I was. I think I was telling Pastor Earl this at lunch the other day. My biggest fear is to be crippled by fear. I know that sounds weird. I know it sounds like, you know, I, but it's just my biggest fear would be to be crippled to where I couldn't move by fear. Because I know somebody, I have somebody in my family who has crippling anxiety. And, and that would, I, I, I would hate that. And um, I'm not a kind of person that fears much. Um, but for some reason, that's, my biggest thought and fear. Like General Cornwallis, the, the, the British commander general who almost won America back for Britain in the Revolutionary War, was losing so bad that he couldn't do anything. He couldn't say, tell his men any orders because he was hiding out in his room scared. He had crippling fear and anxiety. See, anxiety and fear are tools of the enemy to keep us away from God's mission. And a lot of times the thing that we fear the most is not finding favors in the, favor in the eyes of people. That's exactly the problem that Saul had. I was afraid of my men. He wasn't afraid that his men were going to kill him because if his men killed him, they would have been in big trouble because the Lord anointed Saul to be the king of Israel. So he was not afraid that they would have killed him. You have to understand the the for killing a king in that time, he was punishable by death. You and your entire family. Complete insubordination. So it was not that he was afraid for his life. He was afraid that he wouldn't be popular. He was afraid that he wouldn't find favor in the eyes of men and women in his town. What he really should have been afraid of is whether or not he would have carried out the mission of God. I want to make a really important point here. When you go on mission with God, you could either be on God's agenda or your own. But you cannot be on both. You could either be on God's agenda or your own, but you cannot be on both. See, so many times we get started, and this is true in the Christian walk, that we go, yes, we're going to follow Jesus. And then somewhere along the way, we see how it could benefit us. Somewhere along the way, we see how we could come out looking really good. And so somewhere along the way, we begin building monuments to ourselves in the same way that Saul did. 
Egegal. You tend to prompt yourself up as looking really good. But really what God has called Saul to do was something that would deliver an entire nation, that would deliver his own people even for the future. So you could either be on your agenda or on God's agenda, and I'm going to tell you the safer way to live is to be on God's agenda. Absolutely. And when we look at Jesus' call to follow, it was pretty complete. I mean, there was even a guy who said, Jesus, let me go bury my father. And Jesus, what did he say to him? Anybody? Bueller? Let the dead bury their own dead. I mean, that's pretty harsh, right? I mean, it sounds harsh until you think about it in terms like this. The guy who said, let me go bury my own father, that was a common phrase at the time that really meant, let me wait for my father to die, get my inheritance, and then I'll come follow you. That's really what that meant. So what he was saying is, let me go wait for my dad to die, I'll get a bunch of money, and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus said, no, choose now. Is it going to be money? Is it going to be me? What's it going to be? And I love that. Let the dead bury their own dead. Not a popular phrase at funerals, by the way. Anyways, not a popular scripture there. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life must lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. A sobering scripture in light of the video we just saw. The call to follow Jesus was pretty complete. It wasn't on our agenda, but it's on his agenda. Jesus, who taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. See, the idea is God wants to rid us so much of our own agenda that we're always on his agenda, doing his work. That's the call to follow him, is to rid ourselves of an agenda. But we tend to come to Jesus all the time with the agenda of what he ought to do. And the call is to rid ourselves of ours. Saul made it easy. I mean, if anything, <coughs> the, the story of Saul and the Amalekites proved that it's really easy to look like you're on mission with God, but to be on your own agenda. I mean, it just proves that through and through. When you do something great for God, do you build a monument to yourself? So you could either be on God's agenda or your own, but you cannot be on both the second point I want to make this morning. Saul's actions really point to something in our human character that stings a little when we look at it. This might sting a little for you. It stung for me when, when I was writing this message down and, and this idea popped into my head. I went, ooh, that stings a little bit. I don't like that thought. And that's this. We tend to disregard God with our lives and then ask for his is that rain? Kim? That's a long story behind there, but maybe, Aniko, we can get the, the, the stuff set up over here, and Kim could be right, and I'll have to, what do they call that, eating crow? Man, I was, it's not going to be here till 1 o'clock. That's what I said. It won't be here till 1 I'm a false prophet. <laughs> Scripturally, you should kill me. Um, yeah. 
Um, anyways, so the point I was trying to make there is Saul was a man that wanted the favor of God but was not prepared to be obedient to get it. He wanted the favor of God but was not prepared to be obedient to get it. Many times in our lives, we want the favor of God. We want God to bless us in our disobedience. And we say, oh God, please bless us. And God's like, how can I bless you when you're just not even being obedient to me at all? I mean, did you see the desperation of Saul at the end of that? Samuel, please take me with you. Samuel, please bless me. Samuel, please forgive my sin. See, Saul's heart was not prepared at all to be obedient to the Lord. At all. But he still wanted the blessing of God to go along with it. It's, it's wanting your cake and eating it too, or having your cake and eating it too, as the expression goes. It's, it's, it's wanting all these things, but not being prepared to be obedient. It's like when my kids want something, and I've said, you've got to clean your room, and they don't clean their room, are they going to get it? No. they got to clean the room. And Jacob is only 21 months, but that kid cannot clean worth anything. I'm telling you that. <laughs> Makes a mess. Never give him a bottle when he asks for it. I'm kidding. That's not true. It's not true. It's being recorded. Anyways, not true. Um, <laughs> what we want is we want to live our life our own way and ask God to bless it. And what God wants is for us to have reckless self-abandon and follow him and he will bless it. That's what God wants. God cannot bless us in our disobedience. It would not be good and healthy for us. You have to understand that God just cannot do it because it wouldn't be good for us to bless us in our disobedience. You know why? Then we would continue to be disobedient and we would continue thinking that that's a good way of life. And it's not that God's like, hey, you're not being obedient to me. I, uh, I'm not going to bless you. It is literally that it would be terrible for you. The ramifications would be horrible if God blessed you in your disobedience. Imagine leading that kind of life where you're always blessed for disobedience. And that's not the way God works. It's not this transactional idea. It's a relational idea. And, and Saul, I mean, Samuel even says to Saul, he wants to call him back to what, the, what God is trying to do here. And he simply says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fatter rams. See, Saul's excuse was, hey, I was saving all this great cattle and all these great rams, which, by the way, would have been millions and millions of dollars worth they didn't have the dollar system back then, just in case you didn't know. But it went millions of dollars worth of cattle, worth of livestock. What they did is they saw an opportunity to take all this stuff. And see, what God said is this battle wasn't so that you could win a bunch of stuff. This battle was for my holiness, and you turned it into something that's detestable to me. And Saul's idea was, no, 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 no see, we're just going to sacrifice all this stuff. We're going to kill it anyways in a sacrifice. And what Samuel said was, do you not understand that God wants your obedience? He doesn't care about this stuff. He doesn't care about the sacrifice as much as he does your obedience. Your obedience is your sacrifice. In fact, that's what in Romans 12, that's what um, Paul is saying. He says, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, your bodies as a living sacrifice and holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, what God is saying here is your life is your sacrifice. The way you lead your life, when you lead it on mission, on God's agenda, that is your sacrifice. That is your sacrifice. God didn't need the, the cattle, the rams, and stuff like that. That was simply a poor excuse, and Samuel even said it, a poor excuse for plunder or taking all these things for yourself and building a monument for your own self. Do we live as living sacrifices to God? Those 21 Coptic brothers, they lived as a living sacrifice to God. Their blood literally, literally was a living sacrifice to God. So after this experience, after Saul was rejected, and God said, I regret that I made this person king. After Saul was rejected, like I told you before, his life would spiral out of control like one of those movies that I hate. His life would spiral out of control and so much that he was facing, just in a couple chapters later, he's facing Goliath and a little shepherd boy named David who's anointed king at that point has to come and fight Saul's battles for him. And even when we... I'm not sure if we're going to look at all of that text, but part of the text there says that Saul was not courageous, that he had fear, and that David had nothing to fear. Fear cripples us. See, but David at the time, and we're going to hit on David so much more in the next couple of weeks, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but David had confidence that the Lord was with him and therefore did not fear. And Saul would spiral out of control. He would even try and kill David. He would launch an outright military-style assault on David, on his son-in-law. And then eventually, in disgrace, he was killed in battle and had to have his servant thrust his sword into him so that the enemy would not take him out. Saul's life spiraled out of control because he refused to be on God's agenda and he was on his own. I think the events of this last week, the 21 martyrs alone, remind us that we cannot be on our own agenda in God's. We cannot be on mission for God and build monuments to ourselves. If you're here this morning, are you asking God to bless you in rebellion? Are you rebelling against God right now in your own life? And then at the same time, asking for God's blessing. That's what Saul was doing. Maybe you need to say, God, the, the only cure really for rebellion is surrender. Maybe you need to say, God, I just need to surrender my life to you. And I, I can't rebel against you anymore. I need to surrender to you. Or maybe you're here and you're saying, wow, I've been on mission with Jesus for years, but the question today of whose agenda am I on is really important. Whose agenda are you on? Maybe you're out there building monuments for yourself. I think God simply wants to say, hey, I want you on my agenda. Come on mission with me. Work with me. Work for me. We'll do some amazing things together, but you have to rid yourself of the process. Maybe that's you this morning, and I just want to (coughs) invite you to pray one of those two things.
the band's going to come forward and we're going to pray. So would you just pray with me? Father, there are some here today who simply recognize that they are on their own agenda. God, that their lives are all about them. And God, there's times where my life is that way too. And I, Lord, I pray that you would call that out in their lives this morning, in all of our lives. God, wherever it may be, whatever we're doing, if our lives look like that, would you call us out? And Father, there's some of us here today who might be living in complete and utter rebellion to you, but asking for your blessing. And we know that you can't bless that. So Lord, we pray for surrender. If there's anybody here today who simply needs to say, I surrender to you, Lord. I I give myself over to you. Help me live in obedience to you. God, we pray that they would do that at this moment. And that you would honor that and that they begin to walk with you and lives would change. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.